Good morning, y'all. How are we? Yeah, we're okay. Happy Sunday. Uh, for those of you that haven't had the chance to meet yet, um, and I think there's a handful of y'all uh, that either, either got to briefly meet or it's your first Sunday, uh, welcome. Uh, you're joining us as we are about a, m- a month into a series that we began called Peculiar uh, just a few weeks ago, where we as a community have been working and, and stepping out, looking to recapture some of the distinctives of the first Christians, what set them apart from their Roman neighbors. Uh, amid the decline of the you know, Western church, not saying that the global church is actually doing just fine, but amid the decline of the Western church, what we would be a part of, uh, for those of us looking how our faith cannot just survive, but even thrive in this moment, the early church provides a wealth of insight. Against all odds, facing exclusion, even persecution from the Roman Empire, these little communities of Jesus people, the way, popped up all over the empire with this new worldview that in 300 years would overturn not just Roman ideology, but the empire itself. It was a distinctive way of being human, a distinctive way of seeing and being in the world, and all of it was shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was, as we've been calling them, the ethics of Easter. And so far in the series, we've looked at Easter's implications on ethnicity and race and the new kind of identity that is made of this diverse people that have now been brought together in the person of Jesus. We then looked at Easter's implications on the socioeconomical divides and the promiscuous uh, generosity of the early church, uh, going after those that were in need and those that were left on the margins, uh, raising them up and caring for them. And last week, we looked at Easter's implications on a world with stark ideological uh, conflicts and antagonism and the surprising way of enemy love. And so today, if you'll turn or tap in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to go very far. First page, nice and easy today. Today, we're considering the early church's distinctive of practically and holistically defending the sanctity of human life and Easter's anthropological implications. It's a big word, but we are looking at the implications of Easter on what does it mean to be human on what it means to be human. And so Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse 26, would you join me in standing if you're able as we read from the scriptures today? We do this each week as a way of not just honoring the scriptures as God's word to his people, but also with our bodies proclaiming that what we're reading, what we're reflecting on here is not just, I always say this, we're not little brains on a stick, but whole embodied selves. And God's word speaks to our whole embodied persons. And so Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we'll read this and then pray for our time together today. You'll see it behind me. It said, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. God, from the opening of your word, of the story of what you're up to in this world, is the story that each and every single one of us, God, are your image. God, that we have been 
not just tasked, but gifted with the responsibility of imaging you to the world in the way that we uh, form and fill the world that you've given us. So we pray that today as we reflect on what does it mean to be the image of God, um, God, what does it mean to be human, that you would speak to us, God, that you would comfort our hearts and drive us into, God, this way of being a culture of life. We pray you'd be with us today. In name we pray, amen. We'll go and be seated. The early church was defined and distinguished, set apart by their practical and holistic defense of the sanctity of life. The earliest Christians were set apart and seen as peculiar for their conviction that all human beings inherently possess immeasurable value and worth and dignity as the image of God and as such must be treated with the reverence, respect, and commitment to the preservation, protection, and flourishing of their lives. There's a little working definition for sanctity of life. And for the early church, when we say all, they truly took this to mean all. This conviction of the sanctity of life took a myriad of forms. Their opposition to the death penalty, their opposition to war, to gladiator games, truly any and all forms of taking life. But most peculiar to the Roman neighbors, what got them labeled as backwards yokels, you know, hillbillies, was their posture towards abortion and infanticide. Now, let me begin by saying, as we continue into this today, I did not plan this week. I did not plan this series around the Supreme Court leak, the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, the bill in Oklahoma this past week, or even Speaker Nancy Pelosi being denied Eucharist uh, uh, at her uh, mass uh, this weekend. While I'm grateful for any opportunity to lead a reflection on the way of Jesus and the scriptures, specifically when they carry such immediate importance and impact to our lives and our world, I woke up with more sobriety than excitement this morning. I was not skipping out of bed. Oh, yay, I can't wait to talk about this. I I woke up with so much sobriety because I deeply, deeply want to handle this topic with both conviction and compassion. Because this subject requires a Jesus-like posture of grace and truth. And because this is more than a headline, it's more than a policy, it's more than a handful of Bible verses, it is the story of one of four of us in this room. This is your story and mine. And with it being one of four women and men's story, that means that most, if not all of us, have had some direct impact of abortion in our lives. So let me just say from the beginning, as we move our way into this today, my goal today is not to shame, scorn, demonize, dehumanize, or re-traumatize anyone here. I carry an immense deep sobriety going into this week consulting more people in our church, in particular women in preparation for this teaching, than any other in recent memory. And I'm doing all of this, this sobriety, because so often in many spaces where the value and respect and honor of the unborn is held up, there emerges a posture which most often unintentionally, but sometimes quite intentionally, devalues and disrespects women and men who have an abortion in their past. To be truly holding on to the sanctity of life is to hold the value and respect for everyone, no matter their story. So our goal today is, as always, to follow Jesus in a posture of grace and truth. You'll hear me say it again and again today, conviction and compassion. As we work to recapture the sanctity of life distinctive of the early church, we can't forget that first distinctive from a few weeks ago, our new identity. 
founded in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that no matter the darkest parts of any of our stories, we as the people of Jesus are unified by the grace of our resurrected Savior. And we are now a community where fear, guilt, shame, and sin, all of this has been paid for and forgiven. So there is no footnote of exclusion within the community of Jesus, but rather the banner and invitation of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our goal is to carry this banner but while walking in this posture of grace and truth, of conviction and compassion, as we consider what it might look like to think Christianly about the topic of abortion, about the sanctity of life. And so today may be longer than normal. I'm, I've done my best to try to compact this, but, but at the same time, no apologies. We need to think through this wisely and we need to think through this with the nuance and not using little uh, simple answers. And so today, that's, that's our hope today. We're gonna do this through four angles if you're taking notes. Four areas of interest that we're gonna look at. The first is history. The second is theology. The third is sociology and science. And then the fourth would be that of mission. And so today, we have so much to learn from the early church on this subject because their Roman context wasn't that much different than ours. We have much to learn. Their voices are not speaking to a time completely unlike ours, but one that carries more burden, more weight, more wisdom than maybe we give them credit for. And so first, let's look at history. On June 17th, 1 BC, a, a name man, Hilarion, wrote home after moving away from uh, his wife and children in search of work. Hilarion wrote a letter back home, which said, Hilarion sends many, many greetings to his sister, along with my lady Berus and Apollinarian. Listen, we are still in Alexandria, down in Egypt. Now, don't worry about this. If they, referring to the rest of the group that he's with in search of work, go home completely, I will stay in Alexandria. I am asking you and begging you to take care of the little child. And when we are paid, I will send it to you right away. Now, at first glance, this here is an ordinary letter, not just in their day, but in ours, of, of this father moving away for work, writing back with care and concern as he works from a far-off city to bless his family. But the letter then continues, where he said, If you happen to be pregnant again, if it is a boy, leave it. If it is a girl, throw it out. This letter would have raised no eyebrows, it was a normalized way of doing things in the ancient world. This is recommended by everyone's favorite philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, all these other Greek thinkers that you get in your college education. Abortion and infant, no, not anti-college, abortion and infanticide were the common tools of the day, implemented as policy within the Roman world. Whether medicinal, surgical, or throw it out, the implication was get on with things, no big deal. No, what of those three words, throw it out? This is Hilarion describing the practice of exposure most common in their day when an unwanted newborn was taken to certain parts of the city, left on the trash heaps or the dump and left behind, exposed to the elements. In an age when pre-birth abortion brought risks to the mother, the far more common practice was exposure, bringing the child to term, birth, and then exposure. The majority of those left to die were girls, as we see referenced in this letter. That's a trend that's continued throughout history. As one historian so shockingly gravely put it, the most dangerous three words in human history are, it's a girl. Newborns would either be left to die from exposure to the elements, potentially eaten by uh, rabid animals, or taken in to be raised as a labor or sex slave. 
As these children were exposed, slave traders made their way. They were on the prowl each night for future slaves to use in their brothels or on street corners. And so a baby's cry from the trash heap meant future profit. One conservative estimation uh, puts it out 150,000 slaves were added to the Roman system every year through children that had been exposed. Infants tossed out. But the shocking thing is just a few days, or a few decades, excuse me, after Hilarion's letter, there emerged this group of people who spent their evenings walking up and down the streets of their cities, searching, listening for cries among the trash heaps, racing against slave traders as they looked for the infants left behind, and by the multitudes they found them, rescuing, caring for, adopting them into their family, and raising them in the way of Jesus, telling these children of the God who modeled this very same love, and regardless of their story, held them as an image bearer. They were the peculiar people known as the way, as the followers of Jesus. You see, the church was sacrificially on the side of life in a culture of death. Speaking in both deed and word, they were against this common devaluing of human life that was all around as they advocated for justice for the unborn. We can read their words time and time again. I could spend the rest of our time together today reading quotes from the first 300 years. And so just a handful to show this conviction at work. The Didache, an early Christian instruction text from 50 to 120 AD, written in the same community as the Gospel of Matthew, puts it bluntly, do not murder a child by abortion nor kill it at birth. The epistle of Barnabas in the second century says, you shall not slay a child by abortion. Athenagoras 133, we regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being and therefore an object of God's care. Tertullian, an early church father says, it does not matter whether you take a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. In both instances, destruction is murder. Basil of Caesarea, he moved on. We talked about him a couple weeks ago as starting the first historical hospital. He too pleaded with the emperor Valentinian persistently and persuasively winning him over and convincing him to ban infanticide in the Roman Empire. Now these are strong words that just show the dedicated conviction of the early church grounded in the humanity of the unborn. And at the same time, in the midst of the conviction, these are words that cut especially deep for one of four of us in this room. Those words like a murder, those words like slay, those words like destruction. And so before we continue, once again, it's just worth saying, these very same documents that I've just quoted from, we could spend our time reading through them and we will find that that conviction is always paired with a deep compassion. That though, yes, these words rightly describe the reality of abortion, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, for these communities, that though this might have been their story, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For those of you here that these words cut, I, I, I want to just remind you once again of the, the accomplished work of Jesus, no matter your story, and the invitation for him to meet you there. But my hope in this brief historical survey is to show how the holistic, practical defense of the sanctity of life isn't a 20th or 21st century conviction. It's not a conservative or an American impulse. It has roots deep in the earliest Christians. It was a new radical way of seeing and being in the world then as it is now, one that went back to page one of their Bibles. Moving from history to theology, let's return to Genesis chapter one. You'll see it behind me again. 
where we'll read it again. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, that all being language of, of mankind. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed humanity and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The Genesis story, the Genesis account of what it means to be human was an absolute anomaly in the ancient Near East. I can't stress this enough. There's nothing like this out there that, that all human beings are the image of God, not just some and the rest are all the slaves of the God or that all humanities are just slaves of God, but image bearers, representatives of God's very self and nature out into the world is an absolute anomaly within history. That every human being is the image of God. That every human being is set apart, distinct from the rest of creation and made for this royal vocation and partnership and relationship with God with one another and with all of creation. The doctrine of the image of God means, as we put it to our five-year-old Emma, that everyone is God's very important, deeply loved princess and prince. There is a royal importance and value to every single human. And the image of God is both the historical and the only logical foundation for any conception of human rights. Let me say this again. The image of God is not just the historical basis for all of our modern understanding of human rights, it's the only logical one. And this has been attested to not just in the United States Declaration of Independence or the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This has even been understood and, and, and acknowledged as the standard for human rights by staunch atheist and opponent to human rights, Frederick Nietzsche. The basis for human rights is that humans have some inherited, invaluable sacredness to what it means to be us. And the Christian concept of humanity then depends not on what we can or cannot do, but just inherently who we are. We don't have to earn this crowning status as image bearer. No one must earn their right to be treated with dignity and value, with protection and honor. It's our birthright. And Psalm 139 shows us that that image bearing birthright actually began even before birth. Psalm 139 verses 13 through 17 says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. He's looking over like his, their own body. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in the secret place, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Quick note, that is literally the Hebrew word for embryo. I, I really don't like the unformed su uh, substance translation. That's what most, many other translations, because it's the word for embryo, say this should be translated. Your eyes saw me when I was yet in the womb. In your book, then, when I was in the womb, were written every one of my days that were formed for me when even yet there was none of them. Psalm 139 delights in the biological processes at work in the body of the mother, crafting the body of the child, and worships that the creator God is there with his life-giving, value-investing, dignity-endowing presence even there in the womb. God was at work when sperm met the egg at the moment of conception in that eruption, that tiny flash of sparks that scientists have seen, fireworks of zinc that emerged, literally every human being's Genesis 1 verse 3 moment when speaking over the darkness, God said, let there be light. 
He was at work on us and in us at five weeks when our heart began to beat, our brain and spinal cord and body took shape. At eight weeks, when all major organs, our sense of touch formed. At nine weeks, when our fingerprints were knitted together by our divine author, when we began to bend our fingers and suck our thumbs. At 11 weeks, as our vocal cords and taste buds took shape. At 12, when we developed bodily self-preservation, being able to feel and recoil from pain as seen time and again in sonogram evidence that this actually goes back even further. And this is why starting before and around week 12, surgeons apply anesthesia to infants in the womb for surgery. He was on us and at work with us at 24 weeks when our facial features became fully divine, our sense of hearing fully formed, and we began to react to the voice of mom or dad with increased heartbeat and movement. And as a note for context, in the state of California, abortion is open until right around here. We are truly and fearfully and wonderfully made, personally known by our creator before we were ever born as his delightful image bearers, his beloved princesses and princes. But again, for a quarter of us, as I've recounted some of these incredible weekly developments of the child, those words might have been drowned out because one of those weeks was also the same week as a calendar appointment, a clinic visit, a procedure, or a pill. And I want to remind those of you here that that's your story. Once again, 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter our story, no matter how this plays out within your story, there, there is no footnote, no exclusion of grace, but one that meets us all. But my point here in Psalm 139 and really all of Christian theology is to show that Christian theology agrees with science. Everything intrinsic to being a human being is present from fertilization. The entire process of a human being unfolds in quantitative and not qualitative continuum from conception. What I mean by this is there is no magic moment. There is no switch at which point a clump of cells becomes a human being but rather growth of and in humanness that then continues after birth into the rest of life. There is no magic moment that we can attest to and go, there was just a clump of cells and now a human. Genetically, biologically, we have here a human. We'll come back to this in a moment. But as a brief question, now maybe some of you have heard it raised or you're wondering right now, if this is so important, Ryan, why is there no explicit command against abortion in the New Testament or from the lips of Jesus? It seems pretty important for him to skip over. The short answer, there's a multitude of really important things that Jesus never spoke to. Because as a Jewish rabbi speaking to fellow Jews, many of whom had memorized all of the Hebrew scriptures, sanctity of life was assumed by them. So Jesus wasn't feeling a compulsive need to address abortion in his culture because it wasn't up for debate in his. It was in Jewish thought, not just unthinkable, it was one example of breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And so Jesus and the Bible is not to, meant to function as your dictionary of moral cues, but as a representative of Jesus meeting in his mission in his own context. And so we can't assume that Jesus is going to speak to everything. Jesus doesn't give prescribed screen time. Jesus doesn't help us speak to atomic nuclear war. Like this, Jesus doesn't speak to those things. And so good Bible reading, good reception from Jesus is to ask how his words speak into the things that maybe he doesn't explicitly speak to. 
And that's the same reason why we don't find a thou shalt not abort in Romans or Galatians in the letters of the New Testament. Because the Christians in the time of the New Testament's composition were still predominantly Jewish and therefore held the Old Testament as authoritative with Genesis 1, Psalm 139, and others as part of that for them. And so for these communities, there wasn't a pressing need to address something as, again, it was assumed within those. If you want to study this for yourself, Michael Gorman's Abortion in the Early Church, it's not really beach reading, but uh, at around 100 pages, it's actually graciously really compact and well-written. But in the following ages, that as we move out from the, the age of the composition of the New Testament and the apostles, as churches began to be composed of more and more people who were not Jewish and for whom the Old Testament was new reading, that's where there was a need for a, a, a explicit mention of, of the topic of abortion and infanticide. And that's when we begin to see those explicit commands we read from a moment ago, like the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas, those begin emerging because it no longer was assumed as being unthinkable or immoral. So moving from theology, let's now take a step into the question of sociology and science, like I alluded to a moment ago. If abortion should be met with a practical and holistic conviction of the image of God, what is the underlying vision for abortion that we're meeting in our age? Why? What's the defense for it? To which we might presume in the decades after Roe v. Wade, it's science. None of this fluffy religious stuff. And no, it's not. Not anymore, at least. Large in part because of science. Specifically, the advent of the ultrasound and other neonatal imaging. That in its advent, coming out and getting really popular in the years after Roe v. Wade passed, we began to see the process unfolding of what Psalm 139 displayed. One example of this was the cultural landmark documentary, The Silent Scream which displayed the process of abortion through an ultrasound at 12 weeks. You can find it online for free. I would, it's a harrowing watch. Viewer discretion advised. But this documentary, along with the overwhelming majority of science in the 70s onward, showed us we can call it a fetus all we want. It is a living human being and a vulnerable one at that. And herein lies the failure of then claiming fetal viability as a defense for abortion. Viable is simply an uncertain point on the continuum of vulnerability, which continues after birth. We have a whole room of toddlers that need constant supervision because of how unviable they are on their own. Even more, with all the medical advancements of our age, we could argue that viability is earlier than ever before. Because of the ability to care for, for um, premature birth at earlier and urge, earlier stages. So viable truly is a statement of what, what is actually capable to live outside of the womb. We, by science, should be able to say, actually, maybe we had it back here a few generations ago, but based off science now, we're actually pushing it back. But that's not what's moving the conversation. Defending abortion based on viability is basing it truly in how vulnerable the child is. But to end the life of a vulnerable human doesn't sit right for most people. And so we have a continuation of thought because virtually no professional bioethicist denies that human life begins at conception. No, and I'm not, I'm not talking about some you know, Christian at some Christian college who like made with crayon his own diploma. I'm saying Princeton, Harvard, no bioethicist denies what, what people hold as being silly, that, that life begins at conception. 
No bioethicist denies this. The fetus is biologically, physiologically, genetically human. And that truth is objective, empirical, testable, and universally detectable marker of human status. So science now, because it's undercut the very claims for abortion, has now been jettisoned. And in its place is the movement of our day, what is called personhood theory. You'll see this described behind me. Personhood theory is not the science, but the belief that being human is different from having personhood. And personhood, not humanity, is the basis for legal rights and protections. That you being human isn't enough to have human rights. There's some other added little component that you need in order to have the equal human rights that we talk about. So even though a fetus is a human, it can legally be terminated without moral consequence because it doesn't have personhood. Princeton ethicist Pete Singer shows us this thinking. He says, the life of the human organism begins at conception, but the life of a person, a being with some level of self-awareness, doesn't begin so early. Notice the move, the separation of human organism and the life of a person. So yes, science shows life begins at conception. The fetus is a human, but she's not a person, deserving of rights, protection, and care. What about Roe v. Wade, the center of debate and vitriol in this moment, filling up your news feeds? 50 years ago, Jack Justice Harry Blackman, he said the same. The human fetus is not a person. The word person, I quote, the word person as used in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed. Think about this framework, personhood theory, a little bit more for just a moment. When talking about endangered sea turtles, when we're talking about endangered sea turtles, we don't talk about a sea turtle while in the shell and then after cracking out and making its way to the sea, it obtaining another category now called turtlehood that makes somehow now the turtle is worth saving. The egg and the hatch turtle are both protected. Why? Science and common sense. A turtle is a turtle. They are the same living being at different stages of life development and growth. And therefore, as a protected species, regardless where they are in the continuum, they're, prote they're, they're protected. It's illegal to mess around with turtle eggs on the beach. Yet, personhood theory argues a human being is just a human unless some secondary characteristics come into play to bring about that personhood. So consider now, if it is okay to destroy a human, but not okay to destroy a person, it's really vital for us to know what makes for being a person. And here, there is shockingly little agreement about what qualifies for personhood. But all do agree, there are some additional criteria that's needed on top of it simply being a human. Two examples from among the multitude. Pete Singer again, once again, a Princeton bioethicist. This is not some dude on Reddit. He says, it's self-awareness that is the marker for personhood. A certain level of brain function and intelligence. Because of this, Singer has argued up until the age of three is a gray area for personhood and deserving of rights. My son Arlo turned two last Friday. Singer would argue personhood's a gray area. Human rights, protection, gray area. 
Watson and Crick, the discoverers of DNA, argue personhood depends on the lack of biological or genetic defect. And as such, they hold out that a a human has not earned personhood until somewhere around three days after birth, where we can ensure that there's no disabilities present that would cause them to lose their rights, to forfeit their humanity, as they put it. And to put it bluntly, this is eerily similar to the same ethic of the Spartans, the ancient Romans, and yes, even the Nazis. I know everybody always throws out the Nazis as immediately the worst case scenario that we go to, but it remains true. It is this thinking which has been the grounds for genocide time and time again throughout history. It's why the gas chambers of the Nazis were used on the disabled masses before they then turned them back open and used them on countless Jewish people. And it's arguably precisely what Iceland has done and what they call curing Down syndrome through a genocide of abortion. There are indelible ties between the mother of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, her death culture eugenics, her selective breeding ideology, and Planned Parenthood's normalizing of abortion. This connection is so evident that Planned Parenthood itself removed her name It's their founder's name from their Manhattan Health Clinic because of her harmful, I quote, harmful connections to the eugenics movement rooted in her racism, ableism, and classism. Yet what Planned Parenthood skirts past is the fact that it was her racism, ableism, and classism, which was the basis for the advancement of these clinics and continues today as shown by the systematic placement of these clinics in predominantly black and Latino communities. Continues today. Personhood theory will always create unequal rights. Personhood theory is the same stuff that time and again throughout history has justified slavery, eugenics, and genocide as one group of humans gets to call another group of humans subhuman. So the sanctity of life then doesn't just concern abortion, but the lives of different ethnicities, those with disabilities, and those at the other end of life and the issue of euthanasia. It's the critical, the only question, the starting question of all of ethics. What makes a human a human? What basis do you have for rights and them to be equal at all? If you don't ground it in this, what what else? If you make it intelligence, does that mean that depending on the breakup of this room, that some of us are more deserving of human rights than others because we happen to read more? If it's about consciousness, does that mean that I lose human rights when I'm asleep? Does an inebriated woman lose her rights when she's not in full control of herself? Does a turtle without a fin make it any less a turtle? These these don't hold up. Personhood theory is the framework of defense used by academics and politicians that get us to think differently about what it means to be human in a way that has time and again shown itself to be so dangerous. But at the street level, this big question, the esoteric questions of personhood, the street level doesn't spend as much time in these places, but simple condition of personhood all comes down to the desire of the mother. Scrolling through my news app this week, this is abundantly clear. Scrolling through my news app this week, I came across one article detailing pro-choice protests and literally right underneath it, the next, lamenting Britney Spears' miscarriage within the first few weeks of her pregnancy. So what's the difference between celebrated abortion, which must be defended, and a lamented miscarriage that must be grieved? Whether or not the child is wanted. We shudder at Hilarion's letter to his wife, but the shuddering of many of our day wouldn't be so much about the prescription of exposing the daughter, but the fact that Hilarion was telling his wife what to do. Rightly so. 
but not with the daughter killed. Antonia Sr., she's a British journalist who she had always supported abortion firmly until, in her words, then came a baby and everything changed. She wavered on abortion until returning to her absolutist support, yet she acknowledged life, human life, begins at conception. You'll see her words behind me. She wrote, My daughter was formed at conception. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. She concludes, yes, abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil. In her view, even worse than taking a human life would be putting limits on women's rights to control the natural outcome of sex. As she said, the nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil, no matter how you define life. Senior ends her article with the haunting words, to defend human's rights, or excuse me, to defend women's rights, you must be prepared to kill. Earlier, when I talked about exposure in ancient Rome, some of you might have thought, yes, exposure, that's, that's awful, but that's not abortion. That's not what we're talking about. One, granted, 100%. But notice, however, it's the same ethical framework regardless of how the destruction of the child is done. Less risk to the mother, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier in the pregnancy, but it's the same ethical view. Personhood and the deserving of rights depends on whether or not the child is wanted and not the fact that the child is a human being. Now, at this point, side questions here. At this point, maybe you'd ask, what about instances of rape, incest, or when a pregnancy threatens the life of a mother? These are incredibly important questions, more than we can cover today, because in many ways, they carry a diverse views among those who still uphold the sanctity of life. And while not downplaying them, they make up for 1%, 0.5%, and less than 5% of abortions accordingly. These occasions, which so often are quoted as the primary motivation why abortion must be upheld, are time and again shown as only pawns in the conversation, used until they can't be. This was seen this week as, as um, one congressman pushed back on, the, on, um, uh, on a, a ban against abortion with no exception for victims of rape, incest. And, and when asked if he would support the ban if those exceptions were made, the congressman stuttered without words before reclaiming his time, revealing by his silence, those aren't actually the deciding factors in the question for him. The overwhelming majority of the 63 million abortions since Roe passed, for context, that's 10 times the Holocaust, is not the ethically troubling questions of assault, incest, or when the life of the mother is in danger. As important those are, those are not the main question or topic here. Rather, statistics tell us it is 20 to 30-year-old women who through consensual sex have gotten pregnant who choose to abort either on the grounds of potential disability or parental desire. At the heart of the abortion debate of our age, there are two forms of personhood theory that, that defend it. First being that a human must possess or lack something special, something additional in order to be a person. They must either possess some level of intelligence or self-awareness, or they must lack some kind of certain uh, defect or disability in order to be a human person. Secondary is the form of personhood theory that says that a human must be desired in order to be a person. But science, the Bible, common sense, all oppose this. To be a human being is to be a human person. 
We can go back to the turtle analogy again. What makes a turtle a turtle is not some special secondary characteristic. And like I said a moment ago, neither does a turtle missing a flipper means it's any less a turtle. And in the messy world of nature, the parental desire of the turtle doesn't make any claims on its turtleness. To be a turtle is to be a turtle. And to be a human is to be a human. And to be a human means to inherently possess immeasurable worth and dignity. And as such, to be human means to be treated with reverence and respect and a commitment to the preservation, protection, and flourishing of life. At the heart of the abortion question, at the heart of abortion is the question. This is the big one all comes down to. Are all humans made in the image of God or aren't they? Or if not image of God, at the very least, are all humans special and worth protecting? And if some aren't, why them and not others? There is a culture of death at work in this world, but the work of the spirit of Jesus and the work of the spirit within the people of Jesus is to be a culture of life amidst a culture of death. And so with that, let's move to our final area in mission. First, to address maybe the the question that has been motivating me all week long. Why make this such a big deal? Why be so divisive over this issue? Why not just let people figure this all out on their own? As the bumper sticker says, don't like abortions, don't get one. First, because that logic falls apart with any other human rights issue. Don't like slavery, don't buy one. Don't like racism, don't be one. Don't like nuclear arms, don't use them. This framework falls apart when we're dealing with a human's right issue. It's not an individualized issue. It's one of human dignity and value. But more personally for myself, my stomach so regularly turns when I look back on the Puritans, the white pastors of the American South and German theologians who pastored, they preached, they wrote hymns and theology books and commentaries, and they even addressed many issues of their day while they either turned a blind eye or they supported the human's rights issues of their day, either supporting slavery and owning slaves, supporting or or at least turning a blind eye to the rise of the third right or opposing civil rights in their neighborhood? How could they miss the greatest need of their generation? And actually, when you sit and you read their books, when you listen to their hymns, it discredits all their work. We don't sing their songs anymore. We throw out their books. How could they have been so blind? God have mercy on our generation if if Christians in the future or even right now globally would look over at us or look back on us and ask the very same questions for our silence or support of abortion to discredit the faith of an entire generation. Reflecting on this, Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas in an interview at Biola uh, just across the city said, in a hundred years, man, this quote, in a hundred years, if Christians are people set apart and identified from their neighbors as those who do not kill their children or the elderly, we would have been doing something right. How low the bar is. You may think I'm a fundamentalist. You may, think, you may be ready to leave. Maybe some of you already have. Maybe some of you are searching for a new church on your phone right now or no church in particular. But in all love, with all conviction and compassion, if we're to call ourselves Christians, we have to go where Jesus and the scriptures take us. 
The church is committed to the sanctity of life, of acknowledging and honoring people of all ages. And so this is an abortion issue as well as two weeks ago, a poverty alleviation, uh, three weeks ago, an, an ethnic racial reconciliation. It goes to eugenics and euthanasia. It goes to adoption and foster care, to end of life and palliative care, hospice care. This is what it means to be people on the side of life in a culture of death. So how are the people of Jesus, the peculiar people of Jesus to respond? How can you and I holistically and practically defend the sanctity of life in an age like the first centuries when we find ourselves as the minority? Proverbs 31 verses eight and nine says, you'll see behind me, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, for all who are lacking, speak up and judge fairly to defend the rights of the poor and the needy regardless of what happens to Roe v. Wade in the coming month or uh, what continues to develop even at a state level, both here and within our country. Even if something happened tomorrow and abortion was outlawed entirely everywhere tomorrow, there are four practices which should always remain true of the people of Jesus. So four of these as we, as we close out today. The first is we become, you'll see behind me, advocates for the vulnerable and voices for the voiceless, like Proverbs 31 says. We move to the places of pain and at great cost to ourselves, we speak up and we advocate for those who cannot speak for themselves. We use our voices and our vote for life, for policies which support life from womb to tomb. And I, I was talking with someone this week that I understand the insane difficulty that that brings in an age where the, the partisan polarization has led to some of the very same people that would uh, help on this issue would hurt on another and help on this hurt on another. It requires nuance. It requires patience, generosity, and wisdom with one another as we each do our our best to contribute to this, to be sure. But regardless, our hearts are motivated by advocacy for those who are voiceless. Second, we embody the grace of God, the compassion, and the love of God. And so this means that we become a community that welcomes the abortion wounded with open arms as a safe haven of gospel-shaped community where there is the banner of Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation, but for all men and women alike, grace, healing, forgiveness, and life, not just pointed to and offered in Jesus, but found within our relationships as a community. And we work to create a community where unplanned pregnancies within our church do not bring shame or scorn or fear of rejection, but grace and support. Where we, at great cost to ourselves, surround ourselves with those in our church who have found themselves with a hard decision. And we promise that no matter what, we're going to be right there walking with you, giving our money and our time and our hearts, our very selves for you. Third, we embody the truth, conviction, and the love of God. We learn how to speak the truth and love about the sanctity of life from a scientific and biblical basis. We speak about the danger of personhood theory and the necessity for a transcendent basis for the rights of all humans. And we must do this in connection to last week, a posture of enemy love, that as we look across the aisle at those that are different than us, that oppose this, that stand with the culture of death, that we still speak blessing and life and honor and conviction, yes, but we do it with a posture of love. As 1 John says, we speak the truth in love. And we must also hold up sex and children as overlapping gifts of God. 
not as a problematic possibility to sex, but as central to the very purpose and beautiful design of God. We must show the sexual revolution of separating these things as a failed experiment that has led to 63 million abortions, constant divorces, and a generation that is actually losing sexual desire as we followed all of this through. More on this next week. We're gonna have another light, a light week after this one. <laughs> and then fourth and finally, we enter into sacrificial partnerships with those who are trained on the ground advocates for life. A brief word. There is a common saying we're just going to deal with this really quickly. There's this kind of common thought out there that Christians in particular are only pro-birth. No. Statistically false. Nonsense. Next time anybody throws that out there, you poo-poo them and you start quoting this. Do you know Christians double the rest of the country in adoption and foster care? And beating out Planned Parenthood uh, clinics three to one are pregnancy care centers that are largely funded by Christians giving out of their own generosity. These pregnancy care centers, which provide medical care, testing, education, support and care, economic development, poverty alleviation, parental training, and post-abortive therapy and care. If anyone is overly preoccupied just about what happens before birth, it is the pro-choice activists and not those that are standing on the side of life. A deep care from womb to tomb marks the people of Jesus. And so the next time you hear that we're only pro-birth, no, you guys are just anti-birth is the issue. For those of us looking to enter into a partnership, we actually have a sea of incredible possibilities to choose from in the city of Los Angeles. And so what we've done is picked two partnerships at Collective. One that we've had since, I believe, day one. Uh, and the second that we're kind of announcing today. And so the first is Claris. Claris is an incredible pregnancy care center that uh, we uh, have supported for years. I, with my first week when I came on staff, we got to go to their, their little like, you know, fundraising gala and just weeping at the work that they do each and every single year for the women of our city and men. Since 1976, three years after Roe v. Wade passed, Claris Health has served the greater LA community through free and low-cost medical care, therapy, education, and support services. The mission of Claris is to equip and care for individuals and their families before, during, and after pregnancy and sexual health choices. Through this work, Claris has been able to create a standard of care where pregnancies are viewed as opportunities for people to experience greater greater connection, to know their true value, and to create bright futures. Yes and amen. And so here are a couple of volunteer opportunities that uh, Claris is needing in this moment. The first is to serve on the Claris Health Mobile Medical Clinic that they have. This doesn't mean that you've got to like, you know, be a doctor, but like what you'd be doing is helping with setup, recruiting patients, assisting with paperwork, passing out resources and referrals, and assisting with just general cleaning around the shop. The second is a parental support that they've begun in connection with Every Mother's Advocate. And so they're looking for a small group of committed volunteers to meet either virtually or in person with a mother to help her complete her classes and to support her in reunifying with her children. And so this is parenting, mentoring, or teaching experience is required, but training, if you want to join in and do this, is provided by Claris. Allie Cole is right here. She's going to raise her hand. Everyone can say hi. She's going to be right up here at the front after service. If you want to 
uh, get information about one of these two ways or other ways you can support Claris, uh, that you can come talk to her. Um, we love Claris. We support Claris. Um, a, a chunk of any money that comes into to Collective immediately goes straight to Claris. We are so uh, blessed to be a part of the work that they are doing here in our city. And so there's some steps. The second, I'm really excited to announce, our second ministry partner that we are adding, kind of announcing today, is Foster the City. Foster the City is a coalition of churches providing loving homes for children in foster care. They began in 2015 up in Foster the Bay. They were up in the Bay Area, and it just, it has blown up and grown to uh, connections in Reno, and then all the way making its way now to LA, where they're beginning to really kick this thing off. And so on June 5th at 5.30 p.m. at Upside Down Coffee, uh, they're going to be hosting an interest meeting with dinner and childcare provided. And so what this entails is learning not just what it might look like for you to be a foster parent, but also how what they build out as part of what it just kills it and does such a great job is they find not just foster parents within churches, but then they align support systems of friends around each foster family. And so if you're interested in being a foster family or foster parent or in learning how to be a part of a support system, uh, dinner and child care, 530. Um, I'm so excited to partner with them. I, I've, we, we've been a part of churches that have in the past. I have all of my friends that are in the Bay Area and even down here that sing their praises. They started in 2015, just some stats to see what they're up to. They have um, developed in fo uh, 274 foster families, 196 partner churches, 480 children placed in loving homes, and 813 support friends, all since 2015. And I cannot wait for us to be a part of that as well. Now, both of these partnerships provide us with the ability to recapture the holistic and practical defense of the sanctity of life, to step in line with our ancestors of the faith and the global church today, that this isn't just a, an American Protestant thing. This is Eastern Orthodox. This is Roman Catholic. This is anybody that goes the way of Jesus and they've read page one, image of God, walks in this, and this is how we can do this with them in both word and deed. And so at collectivechurch.com slash current series, if you scroll down to practices, you'll see um, that these, uh, what I just talked through kind of redetailed again. And I would just include, I would call each of you, take one step this week, one step of stepping into this. And so for some of this, this is that, that step of embodying the truth. And you're like, man, I've got learning to do, or I'm still like kind of mad at Ryan and I disagree and I have all these questions. Step into learning. If that's coffee or lunch with me, come and grab me today or email me. There's resources. There's two books in particular. Specifically, I would highly recommend Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy on the subject. Um, if you want to embody truth, to be a, a community that embodies grace, I would just say for some of you, that first step is for you to step into a deeper experience of finding it. For some of you, uh, you, you still have, uh, in the midst of this, one out of four, this is your story, and you carry uh, shame or guilt or just tension or fear, and, and you, you want to experience the sort of grace and healing that keeps getting talked about, but you haven't yet. If that's you, you can either come talk to me. My email is on the website in the practice section. Confidential, reach out to me, and I, I would love to um, help connect you with some resources and some potential uh, therapy um, just to begin to work through what it means to experience a deeper uh, experience of the grace uh, and the healing found in Jesus. And then finally, to enter in partnership, whether that's with Foster the City or with Claris Health, to either save the date for the interest meeting on June 5th or to connect with Allie before you go today and get some first steps as we can carry this out. So there we have it, how we can operate through that. We've moved from a history to a theology, sociology and science, and finally to mission.
And now in just a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to make our way to the table to drink from the cup and eat the bread as we remember and receive the work of Jesus, who at great cost to himself moved into our places of pain, bringing forgiveness and life and healing and a new identity. Two things before we pray and come to the table today. The first is how everyone here is invited. No matter your story, all are invited to receive and remember the deep work of Jesus as given to us in the table. His body broken and his blood shed that covers and unites us as a new forgiven and redeemed people. The second as we come to the table is to remember Jesus as the one who brought life to a world of death through his self-giving love. For those who eat and drink from the table, this is our way of being and seeing in the world. We are the people of life who bring life specifically and mainly through laying down our desires, our privileges, and our wants for the sake of others. And so this is what it means to be the people of Jesus because this is an ethic of Easter. This is what Jesus has shown us in his own death and resurrection. So let's pray and we'll move into a time of response.